Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Teacher Takeaway podcast. This is season three, episode 10, and our focus for this episode is effective collaboration between teachers and teacher assistants. For this episode, I am flying solo. Um, Aaron and Alyssa and Becca are all caught up. But for this episode, I'm joined by Claire Jackson. Welcome to the podcast, Claire. Thanks, James. It's great to be here. I'm sure you'll handle it totally well by yourself. (laughs) Uh, Thanks, Claire. And obviously, with our episode focus around teacher assistance and between teachers, our inquiry question for this episode is essentially our, our title name. How can we effectively collaborate between teachers and teacher assistants? Claire, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your journey so far as an educator? Um, Well, I started teaching back in the year 2000, so um, times were very different back then to what they are now. And I uh, started out as a secondary science teacher, um, but very quickly moved into alternate kind of school settings. So uh, my first job was in a hospital school. And that was that was quite different. You know, I'd kind of anticipated I'd go through the usual route and end up in a mainstream school. Um, But my background was in anatomy and physiology. And I was always really interested in sort of the mind and psychology. And, you know, my my other career, if I hadn't been a teacher, probably would have been to be a psychologist. So um, quite quickly, I felt that I'd kind of found my niche that I I liked teaching, but I also liked teaching children who are a little bit different. Um, I liked working in settings that were a little bit different uh, to mainstream. So uh, from there, it was, um, I've had a very um, uh, varied career. So I, I moved after working there, I moved over to London and did the London stint for a while, which is probably where I learned the most about teaching because I, I had um, some pretty challenging students. Um, I worked in a, um, a couple of different schools that were called pupil referral units. So that's where um, you have like a, children who've been excluded or basically expelled from their local school Mm. in London would get sent to these centres to support them with their learning and with their behaviour, with with the the plan for them to be reintegrated into mainstream schools. But the reality was that that wasn't always necessarily successful. Um, But they received really good education and care in those uh, PRUs, we call them, so pupil referral units. Um, So I did a couple of stints in London and then I ended up coming back to Australia and entered a mainstream school but at that time the disability standards for education had just um, been developed and so there was a new role that came up in a school to become uh, at the time I think it was the learning support coordinator but I was basically the person who was going to set up a department to um, make sure that students with a disability were provided with the right amount of support but also that the school was complying with those standards so uh, that was a really interesting time because I, I came into something new. Uh, there hadn't been any support structures in place, anything formal anyway. And so a lot of that was um, building capacity of staff, teaching them about their legal obligations to work with students uh, who have different learning needs. Uh, and then I also, uh, prior to that, I'd worked with teacher assistants, but that was probably when I first started thinking about how to work effectively with them in the classroom. And um, my disclaimer here is that I did a lot of things wrong. I I didn't have (laughs) any training in how to work with teacher assistants. And um, so I I kind of just assumed that they they could tell me what to do. And I was still relatively young and the teacher assistants I was working with 
were quite a bit older than me, experienced, they'd been in the school a long time. And this was kind of a repeated pattern for me early on in my career where I, I probably um, gave them too much uh, look, leverage maybe and, and I they were doing the right thing but it's just that I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing and how I was supposed to be uh, deploying them basically. Yeah. Um, so after that uh, I set up that department. I ended up um, having a young family and then did the part-time work alongside raising young children as you all know <laughs> but that work life balance can be tricky um, but Definitely I always managed so. to stay <laughs> I managed to stay working in support kind of roles and I, I continued working in schools ended up moving into state similar kind of roles in that learning support capacity and a lot of kind of building staff um, skills and knowledge around supporting students with disability or basically students with diverse learning needs uh, then the NCCD was born, and so my role became more about supporting schools to roll that out. And I had a job with Catholic Ed, helping schools to interpret what the NCCD was and and apply it as a funding model. So again, I was working with schools and talking to them about their support structures. And and again, I realised that teachers didn't seem to um, know what to do with teacher assistance. They were just using their funding and employing teacher assistants because it seemed like the most sensible thing to do to help kids who needed extra support. So um, that was a few years rolling that out, working with a fantastic team, a um, bit of a task force, and I loved it. I really enjoyed um, sort of upskilling teachers and, and helping them to see how they could maybe do things a little differently, and, and I was quite interested in funding and that led me to um, pursue some extra studies. <clears throat> I'd finished my master's a little while before that, so I ended up deciding to start a PhD, and um, I had this grand plan that I'd get that done in a few years. Uh, the reality was it took six years, but I've just um, submitted in February this year, so I'm um, sort of finding finding my way again, coming up for air. Um, yeah, so, and, huge and, achievement, Claire. And was your PhD within the area of looking at research within how teacher assistants were used in schools? That's exactly right, yeah. So I, I felt that I think with a PhD, what you do is you realise you've got an itch that you really want to scratch and you find this gap in research. And what I found was that teachers... There was a lot of research already out there about how teacher assistants could do their job well. Yeah. And I think the assumption was that if they did their job well, that they would be used well in schools. But what I was observing through my own experiences was that teachers weren't necessarily aware of how to make the best use of them. Yeah. So that led me down this route of yeah, doing more research into how we could use them more effectively. Well, what a diverse um, background, Claire. Like, uh, uh, if you don't mind me asking, sorry, Claire, within all the work that you were doing within the schools and that continued um, up until you've done your PhD, it seems like you've worked, you know, with a lot of disadvantaged students or, or students that are well off. Was there any motivation from a, a younger age or personal experiences that made you want to go into that area? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's actually something that gets asked quite a bit when, when you talk to people who work in disability. And, and I've often wondered why that appealed to me so much. Um, look, I do have an auntie who has quite a significant disability and she's nonverbal. Um, you know, she's obviously a lot older than me, but I grew up with her being in my life. And yeah. 
I think from a young age, disability was normalised and, yeah. um, you know, going to family gatherings and having my auntie there and, you know, she's in a wheelchair, she's, you know, she's profoundly disabled and has been since she was two. Yeah. So growing up where disability wasn't seen as unusual probably for me made me realise that it's something that we need to really normalise and we've got yeah. to, um, you know, move away from that deficit model and, and look at how we can really tap into, um, you know, the, the strengths of people who have disabilities. So, you know, it's interestingly, and I, I don't know whether this was just fate, but my daughter actually also um, is autistic. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure whether that would have been so clear to me if I hadn't worked in this world, but I, I did notice as she progressed through school that she wasn't learning in the same way as other students. Well, you know, academically she was yeah. actually doing really well. She's quite a bright little cookie, but she was just... um some of the social norms she wasn't quite picking up on and and it, I, I eventually realised that there was something going on and she had a teacher who was quite switched on too. So when she was in year three, she was diagnosed, which is, is quite late actually, um, you know, for autism. I, yeah. I think these days children are diagnosed quite commonly around three. So, yeah, it's, you know, just a, a funny twist of fate really that that ended up being my world. Yeah. Um, I, I... Sorry, Claire, I appreciate yeah, you sharing that with us because hearing from your first appointment, working within a hospital school, which is a unique setting, and then your work um, over in the UK, then coming back, I just noticed that there was a pattern and I was um, interested to hear if there was a connection or a motivation within that space. And I just wanted to share with our listeners as well, within a teacher assistant, depending upon the context or the state or the country that you work on, another label for teacher assistant is a teacher aide, a school learning support officer. They're, they're that person within the, the role of the classroom, which is to work um, in support of the teacher. So whatever that title may, may look like within uh, your country or within your state, I just wanted to provide uh, that context yeah. there, Claire. That's really helpful. That yeah. you know, it, that's that's probably one of the challenges. Is we don't even have one term that we use, no, in, in, even within within each state. Yeah, you know, depending on what sector you're from. Yeah, you know, I think it's education assistants overseas in the states. We hear them called paraprofessionals. Yeah. The UK is teaching assistant, whereas I tend to say teacher assistant. So there can be confusion, even you know, yeah. in, 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 around that title and what their role is. The title can sometimes suggest that it might be you know one thing or another yeah and before i get into the the next question set of questions more formally mm -hmm. um about teacher assistance talking about your phd um claire the the work that you did within that area was it hard to get a phd or what was the process just in a summary to to, to be yeah, able to sure if there's anyone thinking about it yeah um you know we, we really need teachers to get out there and research what's happening in schools so you know if you've if you've got an itch that you just really feel like you need to scratch, absolutely look into it. So um, for me, I'd done the master's, um, but I hadn't done master's by research. Mine was I did coursework. So yeah. I actually didn't qualify straight away to get in. I had to do a grad cert, which was a six-month course. Uh, and then um, based on that, uh, that got me into the PhD afterwards. So you, you need to do reasonably well in that. Yeah. Um, and then you move into the PhD and it de probably depends on each university. But yeah, that yeah. was seemed to be the general way of doing it that you either if you'd done a large research component in your master's, you could directly enter the PhD. And if you hadn't, then you had to do some kind of bridging. So, But then the good thing about that is you can actually begin to do some preliminary research that you can then 
uh, apply to the PhD. So you kind of get a head start if, if you choose to do the same topic. No, perfect. Well, thank you for sharing. Just in case there's any listeners in having the question of how that actually works. So thank you for, for summarising that up nicely, Claire. Oh, pleasure. Um, can, can you tell us about the role of the teacher assistant in Australian schools? Well, it's pretty varied. And I think um, you'd probably find yourself, if you've worked with teacher assistants and if you've worked in different schools, they can be used quite differently. I mean, we had a little chat before we started about you being primary and me being secondary trained and and I think that in itself would probably mean that our experiences with TAs has been quite different um I was going to ask you actually if you have been received any training in how to work with a teacher assistant yeah so Claire from my ITE like my university experience there's nothing um that I can yeah. actively recall on how to effectively utilize um a, a T, TA within the classroom um, it was something that I've identified, you know, obviously when I was fresh out of uni, I was on a year one class, I, I had a student who received funding, the way the school chose to use the funding was to hire a TA, I, I had no idea, you, you yeah. know what I mean, and the, <laughs> yeah, the, thing is, the thing is too, and which I've now learned throughout my experience, um, is how valuable the TA is, but they're only as valuable as the direction that the teacher gives them and the training that the school provides them with. Because That's so true, you know, like if if we're asking these people, which are the greatest utility that we can have, we need to give them the training, like we give teachers training, and then they need to know when they're rostered on to come into your classroom, they need to know their expectations and what you want them to achieve. Otherwise, it's a guessing game. It's getting a dart and throwing it at a dartboard. And then you get upset because the TA is just standing there doing nothing. Well, what direction oh, have you given them? That is you so know? true. You've stolen my thunder. Oh, sorry, <laughs> that, That's like the spoiler. We might as well wrap it up now. No. <laughs> <laughs> you just no. got to the, the major point of, yeah, what I wanted to talk about. So, I mean, uh, I, I can come back to your original yeah, question we'll, we'll, about what they do. Yeah. Um, so sorry, Claire. No, 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 it's great. It's fantastic that you've even, um, you know, mentioned that already. We can think about that a bit more as we go. Um, but the, I suppose... Um, the TAs I worked with were generally there, and this is pre-NCCD days, so they were generally employed when there was a student who had a diagnosis of a reasonably significant disability that would impact on their learning. The teacher assistant, like your experience, um, they were employed to support a student um, and they were assigned one-on-one -on -one for that student. These days they're being used differently, which is a really good thing, and I'll talk more about that later, um, but that one-on-one -on -one support isn't necessarily the best way to make use of an extra adult in the classroom. Uh, and some of the stats I did when I was doing my research, um, I found that I, it's about one TA for every three teachers across Australia wow. uh, in schools. It's probably a little bit higher in primary and a little bit lower in secondary, yeah. but we have a lot of them in schools. There's over yeah. 300,000 of them in Australia. Um, we That's FTE, so they're probably even yeah. more because I imagine many would work part-time. Yeah. So, yeah, they could be in there supporting a student with disability. They might be a general classroom helper. I mean, if you go back historically, that's what they were. They were an extra pair of hands for the teacher. You know, I think back to my days in school, which was back in the 80s, in primary school, there were these extra people in the school who were general helping people. And often they'd be a mum from the school. You know, mm -hmm. their child might go to school and they were going in and doing some reading. And then the next thing you know, the school says, look, we need an extra person to help out. Would you like a job? It's really, really evolved so much. Now we, we probably 
expect a lot of TAs, maybe too much in, in some situations. They're, they're there to support the emotional and social development of students, physical support, academic development, you know, personal care. Uh, sometimes they're also working with other students from uh, other disadvantaged backgrounds. So they might be working particularly with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students or students with limited English proficiency or, um, you know, students who've been away from school for a long time. Interestingly, after COVID, their roles changed again. You know, we, we were using here in Melbourne, uh, TAs were just so important because when there was remote learning happening, they were often in school working with the um, children who were going in whose parents were essential workers or sometimes they'd be online doing breakout rooms with students. So, you know, again, the role just changed again based on circumstance. Um, and then there's a lot of research now that supports using TAs to run targeted interventions. So um, there are some literacy and numeracy programs that are ev evidence-based that are um, great for TAs to run, provided they've had training and uh, that they're running the program with fidelity and they're being um, supported by a teacher. So they don't have the overall responsibility for the program, um, but they might be running that with support from a teacher or even behaviour programs. I've heard of TAs running social skills programs. Yeah. So the role is huge. Oh, and even admin support, you know, yeah. especially with um, the funding requirements and everything yeah. else that goes with supporting students with disability. So, that, you know, it's, it's a massive list. The, the role is. is kind of never ending. And you often think about, right, that, that important role that they do um, take and it's context specific sometimes the school that they're working in. But what level of training do they have going into that? From well, my experience, it's a level of nothing from a qualification. I could, you know, I'm only talking about my system um, within mm -hmm. New South Wales and the Department of Education. Anyone can be an SLSO. You know, yeah, if you, right. when I say anyone, when yeah. they meet the age requirement, et cetera, have a working with children check, you know, few basics, but I'm more talking from educational background, uh, you know, training. There's a TAFE course out there, but they don't need to have completed the TAFE course to be hired within New South Wales. So yeah, that's, that's the why same across the country. Yeah, The training no... and the induction processes, are they there? Yeah, you know what I mean? And I, I think I yeah. know the answer to my question. It's depending upon the context. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, it's very school specific um, yeah. because there is no minimum uh, required uh, qualification currently. Although, you know, hopefully that'll change eventually. I, I think a Cert 3 or Cert 4 in ed support is desirable, but yeah. not, not necessary. You Correct. know, often you'll have a TA who's just associated with the school. Like I said, they could be a, a family member who's worked or, or had children at the school or they might have gone to the school themselves. Um, so, you know, their background is really varied. And yeah. I think sometimes we make the assumption that they, they have qualifications or that they have some kind of yeah. training in how to work with students, but the often the minimum qualification they have is year 10 graduation. So yeah. you, know, you could have someone who is supporting in a year 10 maths class who didn't even do year 10 maths. Correct. Right? So it can be quite surprising. Yeah. No, and that takes me on to what does the research tell us about the benefits of having a TA um, present in a lesson? Well, there are obvious, obvious benefits. Um, like you said, you, you you just love having that extra person in the classroom as a teacher. It takes the pressure off. Uh, importantly, and this is something I, I notice, is that often a TA is situated towards the back of the class and the teacher is facing one way and the TA is facing the other way. So the TA is seeing the class backwards. And you see a lot of things from the back of the classroom that you, you do. don't see from the front, especially these days with children on laptops and 
you know, the things that they've got open when they're supposed to be working. <laughs> so, so they're an extra set of eyes that are so important, you know, and teachers can really tap into that and learn from them and ask them what they're seeing in the classroom that the teacher just doesn't see. Uh, they 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 can collaborate with a teacher. They're great with ideas about what's working or what's not working. Um, another way of using them, which is less um, common, but actually really well supported by research, is that they could be the person who floats around and makes sure all the students are on task while the teacher works with a smaller group who needs an extra support and you know a little further explanation of the task they're doing or some more structured, um, direct kind of uh, support on, on whatever the um, content is. Uh, so, you know, there are lots of benefits, even the admin support that I touched on earlier. Um, I had a great a TA who was really good with Excel and she she just loved making spreadsheets. So she was such a help with databases. You know, I, I needed to keep long lists of students and a whole lot of information to do with their disability and a lot of record keeping. So she became like an, a, a PA in a way. And it was so good to have someone who had that skill she was far better than me and she could just whip up these spreadsheets because she had a background in admin before coming into that role. Um, so, yeah, it's also it's a matter of finding out what they're good at and talking yeah. to them and saying, like, what things do you really like doing? Because then you can take advantage of that. A hundred percent. Like, you know, I'm only, again, reflecting upon my context at the moment. We have such a diverse range of, you know, school learning support officers, we call them, so SLSOs. Yeah. Um, but we have some who are retired police officers, some who are studying education and it's their bridge, some who have just had a career change, some, you, you know what I mean? And it's about yeah. getting to know them as an individual so that you know their strengths and taking that into consideration. But again, the professional learning that we provide them to make sure that they have a clear understanding of what their role is so they know what to achieve. Because I've worked in some contexts, not, not where I'm currently at, but in mm -hmm. the past where it's just expected they know what to do or that we don't invest in developing them. We should be investing in developing them just like we're investing in developing our teachers. Because if we're investing within that area, it's going to improve student learning outcomes and improve the, you know, so many other things within that space as well. That's right. Uh, like I think of something like an annual review um, process in a school. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not sure it might be called an appraisal or you know, different schools use different yeah. terms. But, you know, teachers have their goals that they set and they have something that they've got to work towards over the year and they have someone they check in with. Sometimes schools don't have that structure in place for a yeah. TA and that, that can really affect their morale. You know, they 100%. feel like they're not they're not a part of the school community, yeah. that they're not as important as teaching staff. And yeah. even when I come across, um, like I'm, I'm doing some work now in consulting and we seem to always talk about teachers and, and yeah. I, I immediately like to replace that word with educators because yeah. I feel like teachers is just forgetting that we've got, the, you know, over 300,000 other educators yeah. who are in schools every day and their role is just as important. So I agree. Yeah, I think I think we've got to remember that we're we're all educators. It's yeah. not just about what teachers do. We've got to remember that they are also education professionals. Yeah. And that they need all of the support and all of the training that we need. Yeah, no, I agree. And yeah, I've taken a takeaway from that. I'm going to change my language around that as well. So thank you for sharing that, Claire. What are, no what are some of the inadvertent negative consequences of relying on teacher assistance too heavily that you found? Um, there's there's a lot of research. In fact, it's there's a um, guy called Michael Giangreco and he's really, he's kind of like the godfather of research in this, this space. And he's been doing this for over 30 years now. And 
and what he was saying back when he began researching this area, it's still really relevant now. So I, I sometimes feel a bit frustrated that um, I, I've sort of I'm standing on the shoulders of giants here. But uh, his research says that one, one thing it, it's kind of it's counterintuitive in a way because we think that we're helping a student who has higher support needs by giving them additional support. But what what he found is that actually, as soon as there's another adult in the classroom, we um, they tend to replace teaching instead of supplement teaching. So as a result, the student is kind of on, and he draws these really cool cartoons. Uh, if you haven't seen his work, check out Gian Greco. Um, so he's got this cartoon of a, a child on an island and he's on an island in a classroom and there's all the kids sitting in the classroom and then there's a child sitting on this little island with the teacher assistant. And really that's one of the biggest concerns is that as soon as you place another adult next to a child, they've got less contact with their peers. And, and I often think of, um, I've got a boy who's in year 10. And I, I think of year 10 boys, they're just at that icky age where they are. it's not, it's not <laughs> cool to be around a mum kind of figure. And the average TA is a 45-year-old female. So let's say you've got your average TA working with a year 10 boy. It's so uncool. And, you know, even though he might need extra support, he's probably best to get that support from his peers first. And as soon as they see this mum lady sitting next to him, they don't want to go hang out with him because that's just so uncool yeah. you know, to, have, to have this mother yeah. person there. So, yeah, that's a, one of the consequences that we probably don't think about. Um, you know, we, we could ask those students, what would you like? What do you think works well for you? Do, you? do you need an adult next to you or would you like us to try something else? Like, What's a more natural support? Um, and, and, look, often what does happen is that those those kids end up developing like a, a dependence on having another adult there. They over-rely on the adult and they don't learn to solve problems themselves because <clears throat> their first response is to ask the adult what they should be doing. And that can become almost an insular relationship. Um, they lose a bit of autonomy. They lose that independence. They can lose their identity somewhat. Uh, they've got less access to the teacher, which I talked about before. So they're actually missing out on quality instruction because the teacher thinks they're okay. And like we said before, that TA might not have had any training in, in pedagogy. They might yeah. not understand. And some of the research from the UK shows us this, that they're very focused on task completion. So, you know, TAs are usually um, people who loved being in school. So yeah. they love working in a school. And so they loved getting their work done. And so then they love to help the student get the work done. And by helping them get it done, they're not necessarily helping them to understand what they're doing. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's, the list goes on, but, you know, the student can feel stigmatised. They might get teased or bullied by other kids. We hope that doesn't happen, but, you know, it is a reality. Uh, and then sometimes TAs get a little too familiar with the student and they might start, especially um, where I live, it's a smaller community. And so often they live locally. They're, you know, down at the footy on the weekend. They know the families and they start talking shop outside of school. Yeah. Um, and, and it just gets a little too over familiar so yeah. it's really important that teachers remember that they they should be that first port of call when communicating with families rather than having the ta be the the go-to yeah and i think i think you called out so many great points um in answering that question claire and i i really love the idea of you know shifting that thought process because and that's how I like you know i work for the department of education in new south wales and i love how it's called a school learning support officer not a student learning support That's officer right. because yep. even though yes 
that students received funding, but that funding doesn't mean that person is working one-on-one. -on -one. That that funding means that they're supporting that class within within that context. And support looks different for each child based upon their needs, taking into consideration different things. Um, and I even know from a primary school perspective, a kid's you know, even from a young age, they're very aware of, you know, not wanting to look different and not wanting to be different. And if they see they have this person following them around or going, this person's here for me. Well, no, this person's here for everyone. This That's is, right. you know, a teacher assistant. In, in, you know, in that language, it's, it's here to assist me in the way that, that we see fit. Um, yeah. I'm really interested too, Claire. Um, what did you find out through your own research um, for your PhD? Um, well, I was looking for a gap and the gap was how do teachers, uh, how can they work more effectively with teacher assistance? And um, with a PhD, you generally underpin the research with some kind of theory. So the, the thing I was looking at was self-efficacy. Um, and there's been a lot of talk recently about collective efficacy. So self-efficacy, yeah, it's, uh, I listened to your podcast. About <laughs> um, but yeah, self-efficacy is when someone believes in their own ability to succeed in specific situations. Um, so if let's say I, and I don't play basketball, by yeah. the way, but let's say I was going to go and play basketball, I probably wouldn't have very high self-efficacy because, you know, I, I'm not great at dribbling a ball. So, uh, you know, I probably wouldn't consider that I'm good at it. But if I was to go play netball, I've played that for years. My self-efficacy would be higher because I've got confidence in my ability to um, accomplish the task you know I feel like I can play a game of netball so <clears throat> I measured um, teachers self-efficacy the, the PhD had three stages so I started out by doing a systematic literature review and I just looked at all the research around the world to see um, what some of the um, good practices were and not so good practices were um, and what teachers sort of thought about the way that they worked with TAs yeah. Um, and then I did some focus group research in some secondary schools here in Melbourne and just asked teachers. I, I didn't actually research teacher assistants, but I, I asked teachers about what they thought about the way that they worked with TAs. Um, and then what I found was quite surprising. I, I thought that I would find that teachers would be like me with basketball, that they'd be a bit like, oh, look, I haven't had training, so um, maybe I'm not so good at working with a TA. Um, surprisingly, the teachers I surveyed, and that was over 200 teachers. Mm. Um, it's just secondary teachers. I just focused on secondary because I feel like it's an area that um, is quite challenging because of timetables yeah. and um, TAs moving between classes, between subjects, you know, different year levels. But um, the findings were that teachers thought that they were pretty good at working with yeah. TAs. And then I started questioning, you know, you've got to do a big write-up about what those findings mean. And I realised that there's actually no, no way of knowing if we're doing a good job because there's no measure, there's no mm. standard, there's no, like if you look at the um, Australian, what are they, Australian Professional Teacher Standards, yeah, APST, um, none of the standards even make any reference to the fact that we work with support staff. And if you think yeah. about it, especially in a secondary school, I've worked with library staff, science technicians, um, you know, school nurses, psychologists, there's, there's all these other people in other support roles who are there and if I don't know how to work effectively with them I'm probably going to think that I'm doing a good job because it feels good I can see that they're working with a student you know generally the student appreciates it the families like it so of course I'm going to think I'm doing a good job because I don't know what I don't know yeah so you know in a nutshell that's what I found out is that teachers don't know and I didn't know 
And, you know, so I suppose my mission from here is to get the good word out there and um, help teachers to know what they don't know, because it's not that we're doing anything wrong. It's just that we don't know how to do what we're doing better. Yeah. And and there is a massive gap in, in teacher education in ITE and also ongoing professional learning. So it's it's probably something that schools do need to think about is um, firstly that you being from New South Wales, there's actually some really interesting research um, from Mark Carter and Jennifer Stevenson on New South Wales in particular. And the findings were that teachers are automatically spending their funding on employing TAs or SOSOs. And it's because it's based on this good feeling. We think it's the right thing to do, but I feel as though no one's actually questioning, well, is it? We, we don't have anything to measure it against. We don't know if it's improving outcomes. And what we do know is in the UK, in fact, um, learning outcomes for students are generally worse when they have one-on-one support. So we're doing what we think is good, but actually, you know, there's these inadvertent negative consequences of something that is based around like that feel-good factor. Yeah, and I think the interesting part is too that did your research find that any state or anywhere has a standards for teacher assistance? No, so that's that's probably my my next thing. And I, yeah, well, <laughs> I I'll go into bit, my I'm next a bit, question. I'm a bit worn out now. Yeah, yeah I, I I'll go into my next question, Farah. <laughs> what can yeah. we do differently in Australia to improve the way teachers and teachers' assistants work together? I think we just discussed one of the ideas. Yeah. Oh, look, I, I, my my bugbear at the moment is our teacher standards. Yeah. And so it's something I'll be closely monitoring. You know, I, I know that there's um, some middle school leader standards under development and um you know i'm just hoping that there's some way to um, make some changes here another thing that's actually happening at the moment is there's an organization who is looking at developing uh, standards for teacher assistance yeah. which i also think is a really great development um so they're called australian teacher aid and i think if yeah. we were to have teacher assistant standards and teacher standards i'm using my hands here even yeah. though i know no one can see me <laughs> i can see uh, it, okay. that's all that matters <laughs> you can see um so so you know if we were to have standards for both it, it's not that standards should drive our practice but it would really help to inform teacher training like i think it's yeah. there would be so many teachers out there you know in their 20s 30s 40s who've never had any training in this yeah um you know older teachers too and and we're all doing what we think is right, but the research has been there for 30 years, so something needs to change. I, I really think that um, we're, we're at a bit of a crossroads, and I know there's a lot of um, sort of government interest at the moment into teacher workload and how we might use uh, TAs more effectively. So I'm, I'm hoping that we'll see some changes, and I think that's probably the first place to start is if it's part of our, our professional standards um, that we need to know how to work effectively with an additional adult and deploy them effectively. You know, we're spending, the Grattan Institute actually released last year um, some figures and it's $5 billion a year that the country is spending on teacher assistance. So it's a really massive investment and they're a a huge resource in schools. So, you know, if we're looking at at the numbers alone, surely we want to make sure that money's being well spent and that the students who most need support are being effectively supported. We, We want to make sure that they're doing intervention programs that there there's a focus on literacy or you know multi-tiered systems of support that that TAs are trained in how to support behavior Um, and you know I I think we've just got so much work to do because nothing has changed you know and in the six six years of me doing this research it hasn't changed and you know for 30 years before that 
it, it hasn't changed. There's a real gap. And like, I, I'm yeah. just sitting here reflecting, Claire, I'm like, there, there's a gap to be filled in this area. And I, I just don't know why. Sure. No, like the reason why, like, it makes so much sense of having a set standards for our teacher assistants, even from a national level, even taking in contextually or look different. But I feel like yeah. it's saying, okay, Claire, you go drive to the central coast where I live, right? But I'm not going to tell you how. You're not using a, a roadmap. You're not using yeah. your phone. You're doing nothing. <laughs> you just got to try your best to get there. That's Find what we're your doing way. to our SLSOs. <laughs> Absolutely, we're not, yeah. any we're not giving them any direction based upon, you know, what the school may choose to do. But some schools who might just choose to employ and just go, all right, here's your timetable. You're on 10, you know, 10 maths, uh, 10 science. All righty. I just... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, often the teachers don't even have a plan for how to use them. So they walk in and the teacher sort of looks up and goes, Oh, you're here today. And they're Um, self efficacy, right? How are you going to do Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the research is actually really sad about TAs are not very happy in their roles. I mean, if they find a good job, they'll stick around, but the attrition rate's really high because they don't feel valued. Um, Teachers, you know, there are small things teachers can do just to make them feel a part of the school. They could. Well, firstly, they need to see themselves as a leader. So they've got yeah. to realise that it's their responsibility to let the TA know how, how they should be working and, you know, make them feel a part of the school, give them a pigeonhole, make sure there's their name on the door of the office that they're working in, you know, make sure that they attend staff meetings, be be flexible with their their working hours so that they can be there at whole staff meetings and, yeah. you know, c- celebrate their birthdays like everyone else. Yeah. You know? I mean, I'm sure there are really great examples of how they are a part of a school community, but there's also some really poor practice going on out 100%. there where they're just these kind of tag along people who aren't, aren't made to feel like they're important educators and important yeah. professionals. Well, yeah, I feel invigorated from our, our conversation tonight because I'm, you know, motivated, you know, like even through, through your research within that area, I'm sure you've got that sense of motivation of going, is this something that I can take on to do to make a difference with, within this area? Because you know um, that the importance of the the area and the difference that it's going to make on um, educational outcomes for students, which is what we want to do at the end of the day. And I really appreciate your time. And I, I know there's so many different areas and I'd, I'd love to get you back on the podcast in the future to, to chat more with it, within this area. But concluding our episode, I guess when I ask you this question of what your key takeaway is, when I ask you this question, um, what your key takeaway is, I, I want you to talk about where to next in this area for you. So that's my t- your takeaway. Where to next in this area? Oh, wow. Look, if, if I had a, a magic wand, I, yeah. I'd just wave it across the country and, and change teacher practice. And, look, I think it starts at, at that level of leadership. Yeah. I think it, with all of inclusive practice, it's as successful as the leader who's driving it in the school. So, you know, I'd love to get the word out to leadership teams in schools yeah. that this is a really important part of what happens in a school. And I think... The assumption is that it's the person in that role of the inclusion leader or the learning support coordinator, whatever they might be called, yeah. learning diversity leader. But it's not their responsibility. It's actually a whole school thing. So, so that would be my takeaway: is that we need to um, incorporate this into um, strategic improvement yeah. plans. You know, we've got to make yeah. it part of what's happening in the school. It, it's there, like I said, there's one TA for every three teachers in a school in general. So they're a really big part of what's happening every day and they're working with the most vulnerable students. We, we want to make sure that that funding that schools are receiving 
is well used so that those students, um, you know, do the best that they can at school. Yeah. And it's funny that you say that as part of like the context I'm working at the moment, part of our school plan and one of our initiatives is actually working in this area at the moment. Um, we've oh, just con- conducted <laughs> some baseline data from our SLSOs and our staff about their, their thoughts and feelings around the way they valued the work that from the SLSOs, the work that they've been doing, the training that they've had, then from the teacher's perspective of how much preparation time do they give, how much, um, uh, how do they use their SLSOs in the classroom too. So just collecting a range of baseline information to then make some informed decisions and improvements oh, within that area. That is so good. Oh, you're a trailblazer. I'm so <laughs> yeah. excited. Yeah, well so I'd love to hear more about it, James. Yeah, definitely. And like I said, Claire, would, would love to have you on. Is there anything, have you got a website or anything where people can access, if you, you know, your paper or it's yet to be published, but maybe if you're, is there any way that people can connect with you, Claire? Oh, yeah, for sure. Look, I did actually through the PhD, um, a PhD by publication. So you publish yeah. papers along the way. So I do have two I've already published and another one um, that's on its way. Yeah. Uh, and look, if people want to read those, I'd just yeah. be so delighted because otherwise yeah. they just get hidden away. So that anyone can contact me and I can send it to them. Um, probably the best way to get in touch is on LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, I've got a website in the making, but it's not there yet. So <laughs> uh, unfortunately, there are probably many Claire Jacksons in the world. So yeah. if you have any um, like show notes or anything, yeah, I can I'll, send yeah. you I'll add <laughs> you to Claire Jackson. Yeah. Hopefully you'll find me. Yeah, I'll get um, Alice, Alice, she listening, make sure that you have Claire's <laughs> LinkedIn to the show notes and I too yeah. in the episode description, I'll put a link um, to your LinkedIn sure. profile so then anyone can just click it from there. But Thank you so much for joining us, Claire. And again, I really appreciated um, your intellectual knowledge within this area. It was a thought-provoking conversation for me. Um, and thank you, listeners. I hope I hope you got a lot of, out of Claire's experience and knowledge within that area. A reminder to connect and reach out on our socials on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Share your thoughts and feelings about the episode. I'm James Gray, and we look forward to seeing you again next week for Season 3, Episode 11. Bye for now. Thanks. Bye, James.